Shortly before his death in June 1874, Cochise called his sons Tassa and Naichi to his side. The old chief clearly knew he was dying and made an effort to put the affairs of his people in order before he slipped into the great beyond. To that end, he had been grooming Taza for some time to take over as the chief of his Jaconan band. Taza was in his mid-thirties at this point, and a powerful warrior in his own right, so the choice was a good one and was mostly agreed to by Cochise's followers. But now, as life was slowly ebbing from him, the old chief knew it was time to pass along some final bits of wisdom. What he told them mirrored some of his final words to his people in general. To live in peace forever with the white eyes. Nietzsche would write years later that his father's private counsel was a little more conditional, that they should live in peace with the white eyes for as long as they could. The second piece of advice was to always listen to and obey Tom Jeffords, their father's fast friend and the Indian agent assigned to them. These two injunctions, peace with the Americans and listening to Jeffords, were the best ways Cochise could think of to make sure his people continued to prosper after he was gone. He had no idea how quickly things would spiral out of control. His sons would struggle for years to keep their father's last counsel, which would ultimately lead not to the band's salvation, but to decades of struggle and eventually exile. How things broke down so quickly is today's story. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you are listening to AZ, The History of Arizona. Episode 69, All Because, A Barrel of Whiskey. Welcome back, everyone. Last week, we watched as the brilliant, capable, but highly arrogant Indian agent John Clum began to offer the Apaches his quote-unquote square deal, which somehow morphed into him collecting bands from across the state like so many Pokemon cards and bringing them down to the San Carlos Reservation. The only major grouping that had so far eluded this process of consolidation was the Chiricahua, located on the reservation Cochise had exacted from General Howard, but Clum and others began to eye closing that one as well. In this process, they were aided by the great instability among the Chiricahua bands, American ambitions, and the very laissez-faire management style of Tom Jeffords. To put it bluntly, Cochise's death had opened up a giant sucking power vacuum among not only the Chaconans, but other Chiricahua bands as well. Like any great historical figure, a lot had been riding on the forceful personality of the old chief himself, and it's possible that no one else could have stepped into his shoes. Before his death, there were three possible candidates to succeed him. Tassa, who was his preferred choice, a head captain whose anglicized name was Skinya, and another war captain named Nehilze. Eventually, everyone would nominally support the chief's decision to put Taza at the head of the band, though as we'll see, this was more placating the dying chief than any real firm convictions. At the same time, American ambitions for the Chiricahua Reservation were starting to grow. 
Specifically, they were eyeing the Sulphur Springs Valley for cattle raising and the possibility of mineral wealth to be mined out of the Dragoon and Chiricahua Mountains. In the late summer of 1874, a man named J.T. Rothrack would spend time at Fort Bowie as a member of the Army Corps of Engineers. Rothrack would write a glowing report of the area, declaring that the Sulphur Springs Valley was, quote, one of the most desirable cattle ranges in Arizona, end quote, and that the Dragoon Mountains would be perfect for stock ranching. That's the kind of report that sent 19th century American mouse watering, and soon everyone wanted their own chunk of this cattleman's and miner's paradise. Moving the Chiricahua from their reservation had actually been floated in the months preceding Cochise's death, thanks to Fred Hughes' letter and Levi Dudley's forwarding it to Washington, which we talked about last week. In fact, Dudley, who might be vying for my least favorite person in Arizona history so far, had met with Cochise in May 1874 to ask how he felt about the issue. Cochise, predictably, was not the biggest fan, but as he sometimes did, he punted on the issue, saying that it would be for Taza to decide as the soon-to-be new chief. Dudley could not immediately follow up because in June he was given approval to finally close the reservation at Tularosa in New Mexico. For all the reasons we discussed before, its high elevation, poor location, and distance from traditional homelands, the Chiricahua bands had been slowly abandoning Tularosa since its founding. One source says that by December 1873, there were only 250 Apache living there, though I have seen another report that pushes that number all the way up to 325. Many had actually moved to the Chiricahua Reservation instead, where Jefford's more lax hand suited them better. The rest who remained at Tularosa were to be taken to western New Mexico to what I have been calling Cañada Alamosa, but which my sources now refer to as Ojo Caliente, so I'm going to be using that as well. Jeffords had actually told Dudley that he could send 250 of the Badonkahis and Chihenis on his reservation to Ojo Caliente at a moment's notice. But he had also warned that trying to move the Chaconans, which are Cochise's people, and some of the other bands, who numbered nearly 700, would kick off another war. Still, Dudley, seeing the influence that Jeffords wielded among Cochise's people, was certain that they would move if he would go with them and continue to serve as their agent. To give the devil his due, Dudley may have been right about Jeffords' hold over the Amerindians on his reservation if Cochise had lived. But Tassa was the chief now, and things were much different. To put it simply, Tassa was not his father. He had grown up in Cochise's shadow, lacking the accomplishments and experiences his father had used to so effectively exert control over his people. Dudley recognized as much when he met with Tassa, writing that he was pleased Cochise's son was dedicated to keeping the peace, but Dudley seriously doubted he could keep his people in check. He turned out to be dead on in his assessment. As months after Cochise's death, the Chaconans broke into two factions, with roughly half continuing to follow Taza, but the other half following the old war leaders like Skinya and Nalhilze. 
both groups continue to live on the reservation, which I'm sure won't cause any future problems at all. With Cochise now gone, and noting Jefford's indifference, raiding in Sonora, which had already endangered the reservation once, sprang up again. Jeffords, who made a great show of returning stolen animals and other items that wound up on his reservation, continued to lie and obfuscate to his superiors in Washington, saying that some of his charges may have gone on stock raids, but definitely weren't hurting anyone down in Mexico. One of his particularly favorite tactics was to blame any raids in Mexico on a band of Chiricahuas already living in Sonora. However, he tried to rationalize it, though, the pressure was mounting on his reservation. In April 1875, a little more than a year after forcing the Tonto Apache and Yavapai from Camp Verde, Dudley arrived at the Chiricahua Reservation to talk with the leaders there about moving to Ojo Caliente in New Mexico. This suggestion was categorically rejected by Taza, Skinya, and others, stating that they would rather die than move. And this was enough to spook old come-along, who had mercilessly driven the Camp Verde population from their new homes. He would write to the Grand County Herald newspaper in Silver City, New Mexico, saying his better judgment told him that moving the Chiricahua Apache would only serve to disrupt the peace everyone had worked so hard to build. I will note with some sarcasm that his better judgment is only now coming into play when he actually meets some stiff resistance. Meanwhile, a band of eastern white mountain Apache from the recently closed reservation at Fort Apache decided to join the Chiricahua Reservation. They cited mutual animosity with the Pinal Apache and rumors that a massacre was planned as the reason they didn't want to follow the rest to San Carlos. Jeffords said the group showed up starving at his doorstep, so he allowed them to settle and receive rations from his agency. The major problem with this, however is that it brought Jeffords into conflict with John Clum, who was put out that the White Mountain Apache were living on another reservation that he didn't personally oversee. Now, these Eastern White Mountain Apache wouldn't even stay that long, as they would quickly leave the reservation after two of their number killed a Badonkahi chief over a case of mistaken identity. Jeffords may have thought the immediate crisis had passed, but then he got an even nastier bit of news. Congress was slashing his beef ration budget by 25% to carry through until 1876. And just because bad things always come in threes, he also became the subject of a surprise inspection. Edward C. Kemble, an Indian inspector who had just conducted a review of San Carlos, had been in Tucson when he heard rumors that things at the Chiricahua Reservation were not so good, so he decided to make an unannounced visit. When Kemble arrived in November 1875, Jeffords treated him contemptuously, not bothering to hide his indignation at the surprise visit and the bureaucracy Kemble represented. Historians note that for Jeffords, a free spirit who never wanted the job in the first place, it must have seemed that his time as Indian agent was three straight years of thankless work. So he built up the fact that only he could exert any influence over the Apaches on the reservation, which led Kemble to brand him as conceited. Other leaders, including Dudley, 
had recognized Jeffords' singular role in establishing peace and that his unorthodox methods actually worked. But this ran counter to the bureaucratic-led way that was working on other reservations. So Kemble's report, or what a couple historians have labeled a hatchet job, was filled with half-truths and misrepresentations that he had no control over his charges, that he let the Amerindians roam wherever they wanted, that he was giving away rations willy-nilly, and, of course, that raiding in Sonora could be traced to his lax discipline. Finally, Kemble came to the all-too-familiar conclusion that the Apache on the Chiricahua Reservation had to change their traditional way of life to be farmers. They needed a new agent, he said, who would disarm them, ban Tiswin, get them to raise sheep or cattle. Then the bombshell. Perhaps influenced by his visit with Clum, Kemble recommended, quote, I think the San Carlos Reservation will prove to be the best place suited to these Indians, end quote. After this disastrous report, all the upper-ups in the Indian Bureau needed was an excuse. Fortunately for them, and unfortunately for literally everyone else, they didn't have to wait long. Soon after Kemble left, Jeffords received word from the new Commissioner of Indian Affairs, John Quincy Smith, that his corn budget was being cut. Jeffords went back and forth with Smith over his supply issues, particularly for beef, which was a cornerstone of the Howard-Cochise Treaty. The Amerindians were already heading into the hills to hunt game, which would lessen Jeffords' ability to influence them. Worse, if meat wasn't procured, the Chiricahua would go down into Mexico, where they knew they would be able to raid for it. And this actually happened, or should I say continued to happen, because it's not like it had ever actually stopped, aside from the brief period before Cochise's death. We do know that Skinya, who led one faction of the Chaconans, led raids into Mexico during this time. He would even approach Tassa and Naichi, the latter happened to be his son-in-law, and invite them to leave the reservation with his group, but the sons of Cochise still refused to do so. This even led to a tiswin fuel fight between the two sides that left at least one man dead. That last point is important. The fact that Jeffords still allowed Tiswin on the reservation was a cause for concern for most Americans. You'll recall from last week that Clum had actually banned it after arriving at San Carlos. But while he allowed the homemade corn alcohol, Jeffords had banned whiskey. So that's why it was such bad news that a man named Nicholas Rogers, who owned a ranch at Sulphur Springs, had brought home a keg of whiskey from Tucson. How the Apache found out about this keg is anyone's guess, but a warrior named Pioncene, the brother of Skinya, showed up at Rogers' ranch. Flush with gold from his recent raids into Mexico, he bought several bottles off of Rogers. The next day, he returned and purchased more. Back at his camp and heavily intoxicated, Pioncene actually wanted to fight his brother, and when two of his sisters intervened, he killed them both. Leaving his camp with his nephew, Pioncene arrived at Rogers' place in the early evening of April 7, 1876. This time, however, Rogers refused to sell the Apache any more liquor. As you might expect, Pioncene, 
who had already killed that same day, did not take this news well, and he shot Rogers, while his nephew finished off Rogers' business partner. They then ransacked the place, taking all sorts of supplies, including the precious barrel of whiskey that had already been the root cause of four deaths. News of these murders spread, and Jeffords immediately requested help from the army. He rode out to find Tassa and advised him to move closer to Apache Pass, as far away from Skinya's faction as possible. Meanwhile, Pionsene and a small group had struck two small settlements in the San Pedro River Valley, killing yet another man. He and Skinya were eventually able to make it down into Mexico, despite skirmishes with the army along the way. As is usually the case with such incidents, rumors chased rumors about what had actually happened. In Tucson, word was that all except one small band had revolted. Another rumor stated that the other bands had left their reservation to join with Skinya. It didn't help that there had been a small migration into the Chiricahua Reservation right before the attack that lent some credence to these rumors. This gave John Wasson, the editor of the Tucson Weekly Citizen, all the ammunition he needed to fire off editorials against Jeffords. The paper would print flat-out falsehoods about Jeffords, including that he was drunk at his post all day, that he traded liquor, guns, and ammunition to the Apache, and that he allowed them to keep captured Mexican children. Railing against Indian officials was something of a specialty for Wasson, whose screeds against Lieutenant Royal Whitman had helped lead directly to the Camp Grant massacre. The paper also declared on April 15th, quote, 999 out of a thousand people believed that the kind of war needed against the Chiricahua was steady, unrelenting, hopeless, and undiscriminating war slaying men, women, and children. End quote. With the death of Rogers and his partner, the usually lethargic and bureaucratic government suddenly sprang to life. Governor Anson P.K. Safford began formulating plans to both quell the suspected uprising and to get rid of the troublesome Chiricahua Reservation altogether. He would say in a newspaper interview, quote, I disapproved of the management of the Indians by Agent Jeffords. I thought the time had arrived to break up the reservation and put a stop to this disgraceful conduct. End quote. Let's forget that this statement flies in the face of previous ones because, well, Safford is a politician. As you might expect, smack dab in the middle of this was John Clum, who just happened to be in Tucson five days after Roger's death and met with Safford. A few days later, on April 14th, so a week since the attack, he wrote to Safford saying that he had gathered a special police force of some 235 Apache at San Carlos who were ready, willing, and eager to march on the Chiricahua Apache. Safford told Clum that the latest intelligence showed that Toss and his people had not left the reservation as had been rumored. But even though he knew this, on April 17th, the governor fired off a telegram to his superiors in Washington that all except Tassa and just a handful of followers had fled the reservation. This lie, or rather half-truth, may have been rooted in Safford's goal of opening up the reservation to American settlement. Either way, Wasson, who was in Washington lobbying to give Clum control over the Chiricahua Apache and have them removed to San Carlos, used this to his full advantage, 
On May 3rd, Indian Commissioner Smith ordered Clem to remove Jeffords, close the Chiricahua Reservation, and move any remaining Amerindians to San Carlos. Clem gladly accepted these orders, as you probably suspected. Jeffords may have learned of his own dismissal when the Tucson Weekly Citizen reported it on April 6th, so just a month after the killing of Rogers. And I would like to offer here a subtle correction for something I said two weeks ago when I implied that Jeffords would ultimately resign. I had misinterpreted something I read about Jeffords filling out a letter of resignation, but was not actually sent in. He will actually be dismissed, though in the most roundabout way possible. Just to complicate matters, on May 12th, so six days after the newspaper informed Jeffords that his services were no longer needed, Skinya reached out to request a parley with him. Jeffords would take this meeting, and Skinya would swear only three men, including his brother Pionsene, had participated in the killings, and that Skinya's group had only fled because they feared retribution. To show their seriousness, Skinya would come into the agency headquarters without the three in question, who were still hiding out in a far-flung place on the reservation. But here we get one of those bits of irony that history loves ever so much. A clerk at the local store wrote to the Tucson Weekly Citizen to report that he had just seen Roger's killer. In reality, he had mistaken one of Skinya's men for Pionsene, but this error was soon printed in the paper, which was then seized on by an overly eager Clum. By the end of May 1876, Clum was in Tucson with his special police force, who were reported to have dressed up and put on a great war dance for the American spectators there. Here, Clum also waited for Colonel August V. Kautz, who would replace Crook as the military commander for the territory of Arizona. Meanwhile, Jeffords met with Tassa for a serious talk. Tassa told his father's friend to leave the reservation quickly. He was determined not to be moved, and he didn't want Jeffords to see him or his brother slaughtered. Jeffords countered that Tassa had promised Cochise to always live in peace with the White Eyes. Also, Jeffords had made his own promise to the now-dead chief, saying that he would never leave the Chaconans without first finding them a safe place to live. So there was nothing left for either to do but wait for what was coming. The military was in place in Tucson by May 31st, waiting to see if they could remove the Chiricahua without bloodshed. Fred Hughes, who was Jeffords' clerk and apparently didn't know that his boss was about to get the axe, acted as a go-between for Clum and the military. Both Tassa and Skinya were adamant that they did not want to be relocated, though Tassa and Naichi were also dead set on keeping the peace if at all possible. The military began to move toward Fort Bowie as the preliminary step to be ready for force relocation if necessary. Meanwhile, Fred Hughes rode into Jeffords' agency, only to be met mere moments later by an Apache runner from Tassa. It seems that Skinya and his faction had met up again with Tassa and Naichi to once again persuade them to leave the reservation and run away into Mexico. When the sons of Cochise again refused, members of Skinya's party, likely under the influence of Tiswin, 
became violent. In the ensuing fight, Naichi was forced to shoot Skinya, his own father-in-law, through the head. I will also note that Pionsene was gravely wounded in this altercation. With the older, more traditionalistic Apache now dead, killed by the younger, more pragmatic leaders, it was time to deal with Klum and Kautz. At 9 a.m. on June 5, 1875, Tassa and his followers, numbering more than 200, gathered at Fort Bowie. Klum handed Jeffords a telegram that officially relieved him of duty, the only official notice he received about all this, by the way, before turning to deal with Tassa and his people. The next day, on June 6, the remaining Apache spoke with Klum about his wish to relocate them. Tassa made a speech where he said that he had no desire to relocate. This was his ancestral homeland, and he did not want to be removed. But he had promised his father to always live in peace with the White Eyes, and he and his people would not break that. As some consolation, Klum did promise them a spot at the abandoned Camp Goodwin, which was far away from the Western Apache, with whom the Chaconans did not get along. He and Kautz also decided not to press the issue of disarming the Chaconans just yet. One sticking point was a group of Nednies living at the reservation under Hua and Geronimo. They readily agreed to come into San Carlos, but asked for 20 days so they could just run and grab something real quick. Don't worry, we'll be right behind you. Hughes, rightly suspecting their intention, told Clum not to negotiate. But the agent, convinced of his own infallibility, decided they could be trusted, but only somewhat. He said they had four days to go and come back. You probably saw this coming a mile away, but the Nennies took this opportunity to rush down into Mexico, far, far away from Clum's reach. This will not be the last time that happens, by the way. On June 12, 1876, a group of 322 Apache began their march from Apache Pass toward San Carlos. Of those, only 42 were men, as the rest of the warriors had fled, either into New Mexico or down into Old Mexico. Clem would actually use these numbers to hammer Jeffords on charges of fraud, because he had claimed close to 1,000 Apache on his ration rolls. What he and the press who continued to excoriate Jeffords did not realize is how many Apache had fled amid all the chaos and confusion. Clum, in a very self-congratulatory sort of mood, made sure to telegram his superiors to let them know that, quote, The move is a great success, and I think the terrible shade of Chiricahua has been passed away forever. End quote. Sure, whatever you say, dude. The person who got short-shifted here, and I mean, besides the literally hundreds of people who are forced to be removed from their homeland, is Jeffords. Though criticized by nearly everyone around him, there is no doubt that his turbulent three and a half years overseeing the reservation had been successful. In the words of historian Thomas Sheridan, the Chiricahua Reservation was not so much a place as it was a web of trust trust between Cochise and Jeffords, Jeffords and Howard, and Cochise and the rest of the Chiricahua. With Cochise now gone and Jeffords removed, the whole reservation collapsed. But the long and short of it was that Jeffords was scrupulously honest in his dealings with the Apache, 
something that can be rarely said of Indian agents. His books had been examined on no less than three occasions, and everything was found to be in order. In fact, after his dismissal, Jeffords sent in his final report to the Indian Bureau, where only a receipt for $4.50 to publish in a newspaper for a flower contract was unaccounted for, and that receipt was later found, by the way. Jeffords would tell those around him that he actually was poorer after having served as the Indian agent, having spent some of his own money just to secure rations for his charges. Of course, none of that stopped the editorials in Tucson from continuing to accuse Jeffords of all sorts of improprieties. The Tucson Weekly Citizen even refused to print an op-ed piece he wrote defending himself from their attacks because he was, quote, an aider and a better of thieves and murderers who can under no circumstances use the pages of the Citizen to pardon the flimsy falsehoods of denial, end quote. I wouldn't feel too bad for him, though. As I mentioned before, he did not want to be an Indian agent in the first place, and one historian says he probably was relieved to not have to oversee the reservation anymore. He would eventually move to the boomtown of Tombstone, which you may have heard of, and own stakes in several mines. He would live the last two decades of his life at a homestead in the Tortolita Mountains north of Tucson before dying on February 19, 1914, at the age of 82. With the Chiricahua now living at San Carlos, things seemed to be settled for good. No one knew at the time that the closing of the reservation would lead directly to a reopening of the Apache War and the emergence of Geronimo, arguably the most famous Amerindian in United States history. So join me next time as Clum, still trying to complete his collection of vintage Apache bands, comes head-to-head with this most famous of Apache leaders. Though that confrontation will not bring him down, eventually his own overreaching will finally be his downfall. Of course, all of Arizona will pay the price for that overreaching. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you've been listening to AZ, the history of Arizona. Goodbye. <laughs>